Good, well do please keep your Bibles open at the passage and let me remind you that our home group Bible studies get started again this week on Wednesday. I look forward to seeing you then. But uh, first let's ask the Lord to help us understand this this marvellous passage. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great privilege of an open Bible and we thank you that by your Holy Spirit you open up its treasures to our hearts when we kneel (coughs) submissively before you. (coughs) So we do that now this morning and pray that you would minister to each one of us at his or her point of need. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) How many people stay outside the fellowship of a local church because they're frightened of the devastating distance between the demands of God and their daily lives. How many Christians nurse a secret sense of failure because they too are aware of the gap between what God asks of them and the way that they live? And how many Christians find a painful gap between the simplicity of Sunday and the things that they know to be true and the complexity of Monday. The gap between what appears to be black and white in the Bible and what often appears to be grey and confusing during the week. Now friends, That gap is the reason that we need the realism of the Bible. We need to be reminded that there are no human heroes in Scripture. Noah was a drunkard. David was a murderer. Samson, well, he was rather stupid. Uh, Mary thought her son, the Lord Jesus, was mad. And on one occasion, the Apostle Peter even spoke words from Satan. Now, why is that? Why is it that people with tremendous spiritual advantages, people with privileged access to God, people actually rather like us, why is it that we can sometimes get things so badly wrong. And what happens when we do? When we do make these appalling blunders, where is encouragement and comfort to be found? Well, that's where our passage this morning is so very helpful. It's actually one of the Bible's treasures. But in order to get to the treasure we first have to stand back and see the passage in the context of the Bible as a whole. You see, one of the themes that runs all the way through the Bible is the constant opposition of the devil to the plans and purposes of God. It's a battle that's constantly raging behind the scenes whether we know it or not. So there's a rather marvellous verse in the New Testament which summarises the picture rather wonderfully. 
It comes from the pen of the Apostle John and he says this, quote, We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's 1 John 5, verse 19. So the Apostle John says uh, that as a Christian, I ought to know two things. Uh, I know I am a child of God. Uh, Yes, I do know that. Uh, I hope you do too. But the trouble is, I tend to forget the second part of the verse, which tells me that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now, I sometimes forget that, and I wonder if you do too. Uh, Whilst we were in England, um, our email service crashed. Uh, We'd had a number of very encouraging meetings with different people and churches who wanted to support us, and I was eagerly awaiting to receive their emails. Uh, But when our email service broke... I became extremely anxious. Uh, How would these supporters react when their emails bounced? Would they still want to support us? Um, Why did God allow this to even happen in the first place? You see, in the heat of the moment, I forgot that the whole world is under the control of the evil one that we are engaged in a real conflict with a real enemy who is constantly doing everything possible to frustrate the purposes of Almighty God and to destroy the church. Now, of course, we all know, don't we, that the devil has been defeated at the cross. But he hasn't been destroyed And that will only happen, of course, when the the Lord Jesus returns. But until then, every Christian and every church is engaged in spiritual conflict. So, in the book of Joshua, the promise of God to Israel is all about the conquest of the land. God has rescued his people, hasn't he, from bondage in Egypt and he's promised to give them a land of their own. And one day, when Israel is settled in the land and living faithfully under the righteous rule of God, one day the saviour of the whole world will come. That is God's purpose. So, as the promise of the land begins to be fulfilled in Israel's experience, it's hardly surprising that the opposition increases in its size and in its intensity. Now, you can see that in verse 1 of our passage, where there is a coalition of Canaanite kings who've come together to make war against Joshua and Israel. You see, it's not just one or two kings, is it? It says it's all the kings west of the Jordan. Now, I suppose at one level, 
you could argue that uh, all they're doing is trying to preserve their land from the invaders. But you see, the perspective of the book of Joshua is that these events are part of the spiritual conflict of which Joshua's conquest is the earthly expression, the earthly reality. And the conquest is God's way of cleansing the land from idolatry and immorality so that his people won't be led astray when eventually they settle down in it. But you see, the devil isn't going to take any of this lying down. He's going to resist God's plans with all the power at his disposal. Now sometimes, uh, in the book of Joshua, the devil makes an all-out physical attack on the people of God. So there are real pitched battles, people are killed, people are wounded. But sometimes the devil's attacks are far more subtle than that. And this chapter, from verse 3 onwards, deals with something that is actually far more difficult to cope with. So let's look at the text a bit more closely and notice with me first how the enemy attacked. How the enemy attacked. Verses 3 to 13. Verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. Now in chapter 10, verse 2, we're told that Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities, and that all the men were good fighters. Gibeon was about six miles northwest of Jerusalem, so it was right in the middle of the promised land. And it had a number of dependent townships around it. Now, although the men of Gibeon were good fighters, they knew that they were no match for people whose God could take Jericho by making the walls fall down. So they made another plan. You see, if battering down the front door isn't going to work, Satan will always try the side entrances. And on this occasion, he had two particular strategies up his sleeve. The first was disguise in verses 4 to 6. Verse 4. The people of Gibeon resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. The men put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. So you see, they were very clever. They knew that after Ai, Gibeon was the next on Joshua's list. So what did they do? Well, instead of engaging Israel in battle, they sent a delegation which had all the signs of having come on a very long journey. Worn out sacks, 
old wineskins, mouldy bread. And you see their story, well, it sounded very authentic, didn't it? Verse 12, This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and mouldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. And so you see, as the Israelites listened, the evidence of their eyes seemed to point to the truth of the story. And yet if you look at verse 7, you'll see that Joshua and the men already had their suspicions. The men of Israel said to the Hevites, but perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? Now why did they say that? Well that's because in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 2, God had given Israel a very clear instruction. He said, when the Lord your God has delivered the Canaanites over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. So you see, Joshua and his men knew that if these people lived in the land, there was no question of the Israelites making a treaty with them. And the Gibeonites knew it too. Now some people have said that the Canaanites were, uh, sorry, that that God was unnecessarily harsh in his dealings and treatment of the people of Canaan. You know, they say something like this, um, I cannot believe in a God of love when he allows people to be slaughtered in this indiscriminate way. Now it is a complex question but the main point is that the tribes in Canaan were totally given over to idolatry and to the grossest forms of immorality. They'd been given every opportunity to repent but they hadn't. And you see, if Israel were going to live the life that God had called them to live in the promised land, well, these evils had to be removed. Because if God didn't do that, then the sins of the Canaanites would pollute Israel and infect the whole nation. You see, God is way, way more concerned about righteousness than we are. Because we're sinners, our judgment is warped and our understanding of what sin is really like and the damage that it does is, well, it's at best inadequate and at worst non-existent. But God says, I will not allow sin in my presence. I will not tolerate idolatry and immorality in my land. And so through the conquest, you see, God was giving his people the task of stamping out evil. And that's why Israel were forbidden to make treaties with the Canaanites. And so in verse 7, the question that the Israelites were asking themselves was this. 
If these people want a treaty with us, why have they come so far? I mean, if they live far away, if they live outside the promised land, well, we aren't a threat to them anyway. So why come all this way to make a treaty? It was actually the right question to ask. But before they could answer it, the enemy launched a second attack. And if his first attack was disguise, his second attack came by flattery. Verse 8. Just notice verse 8 there. Uh, The Gibeonites say, We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. You see, they knew exactly how to get through to Joshua. For we've heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. Now notice, will you, that it wasn't just the flattery of their offer to Joshua in verse 8. We are your servants. Not just that. It was also their apparent reverence for God. Verse 9. We've heard of the fame of the Lord your God and of all that he has done. Now that really impressed Joshua and the elders, and it would have impressed us too. Because these people were saying, we believe in your God. We know that he's powerful. Now what are you and I to learn from all this this morning? Well friends, it is a great reminder, isn't it, that Satan loves to appear as an angel of light. Satan can actually look just like a Bible-believing Christian. And having disarmed us with his um, conservative theology, one of Satan's favourite weapons is flattery. Do you remember that's how Eve was deceived in the garden? The devil came to her and he said, you will be like God. Flattery. And here, Joshua and the leaders knew that God hadn't said anything about not making treaties with people from outside the land. So maybe they thought that making a treaty with these people could be to their advantage. After all, they they appeared to be telling the truth. And seeing is believing, isn't it? I mean, just look at their patched sandals and their worn-out sacks, and the mouldy bread. Indeed, for Israel, seeing was believing. But it was believing a lie. Disguise and flattery. And you see, for us as Christians, the enemy attack is often in the form of a subtle compromise. It's an invitation to join forces with somebody or some group who aren't what they appear to be. 
They use all the right religious language, but there's no evidence that they really belong to Jesus Christ or that they have submitted to him personally. Um, In our own personal lives, uh, it might be the pressure to compromise in our behaviour. For example, um, a Christian might say to himself, it doesn't really matter if I marry this person. They're not actually a Christian in the same sense that I am, but they believe in God and they're prepared to come to church now and again. What could possibly be wrong with that? But the Bible says, how can you possibly enter into the deepest human relationship possible if the other person has fundamentally different allegiances and priorities? Your allegiance is to God, theirs is not. And at work and in our families, we're constantly pressurised, aren't we? not to follow God's word in complete obedience, but rather to make alliances with people who may look very impressive and who may be charming company, but who would in the end lead us a long way from the will of God. And you know, history is absolutely full of alliances that have brought sadness and sometimes ruin to a church or to a family or to an individual because of the enemy's disguise and flattery. And we're not to be deceived. Satan uses the same methods over and over again. And these incidents in the Old Testament, like Joshua chapter 9, are written for our learning so that through patience and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So let's learn something about Satan's methods from this chapter and let us not be deceived by appearances. Secondly, and rather more briefly, please notice how Israel failed how Israel failed, verses 14 and 15. Now, verse 14, once again, right in the middle of the chapter, verse 14 is the key to the whole story. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. In other words, they judged by appearances, but they didn't pray. They acted on what their human faculties were telling them, but they didn't ask God about it. You know, one of the most famous proverbs says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Now what Proverbs is saying is don't trust your own judgment because appearances can be so deceptive. It's one of the reasons why the Bible tells us that we are not to judge other people 
Because you and I tend to judge by appearances. And we can never really know for sure what's going on inside the other person or the full particulars of whatever situation they might be dealing with. And that's why Jesus says to us, don't judge, so you will not be judged. So, uh, a ministry colleague in the UK was moving from one church to another, um, and in gratitude for all of his faithful years of service, the church that he was leaving uh, gave him and his wife a rather smart three-piece suite of furniture. And uh, when he arrived at the new church, um, they started inviting people from the parish round for meals to get to know them. And a number of people commented immediately on the quality of the furniture. And the implication in their comments was either that the minister was being grossly overpaid or that he and his wife had been recklessly extravagant. You see, how easy it is, isn't it, for us to make judgments based on what we see. But you see, our judgments are so often completely misguided. And that's why Jesus says, you and I are not to set ourselves up in judgment over other people. That is not our job. Our job is to inquire of the Lord. That's what God wants us to do. Not to judge others, but to pray for direction. And in Joshua chapter 9, Israel's mistake was not submitting their common sense judgment to God. Now I think the application for us is pretty obvious, isn't it? That you and I are to take time to submit our decisions to God. You know, in our busy world, the pressure is always against us doing that. The pressure is always on for you and me to make our decisions instantly. Now, of course, there are some decisions that we do have to make instantly. Uh, daily decisions about relatively unimportant things. But even there, every day, you and I are to commit ourselves to God and to trust that in those countless little decisions, God will guide us. And that's what living by faith is all about. Commit each day to God and trust him. But from time to time, all of us face much bigger decisions. Decisions that will not only affect our lives, but the lives of the people that we love, maybe for many years to come. And when we're facing those bigger decisions, we must never, never, never allow ourselves to get stampeded into acting without praying first. The rule of the road is if you haven't got time to pray, don't act. Because in those situations, there should be no forward movement without the peace of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's the verse in Colossians, Colossians 3, verse 15, which says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, that means 
let the peace of God act as the third umpire in your life. So think of a test match. Uh, In a test match, there is an appeal by the fielders. And the umpire on the field gives an instant decision based on what he has seen and what he has heard. But sometimes the players will disagree. And in those moments, that decision gets referred upstairs to the third umpire. Why? Because the third umpire has resources at his disposal that the umpire on the field doesn't have. Only he has the full picture and therefore only he has the authority to give the final decision. And in the same way, when you and I face an important decision, instead of rushing ahead, we are to pray about it. Because only God has the infinite resources at his disposal that give him alone the full picture. So we ask God to guide and to direct us. How? Well, through his word, through the advice of Christian friends, and through our circumstances. And God uses those means to show us the way and to show us the right decision to make. Now, God doesn't give us the guidance before we need it. He's not going to be showing us what we should be doing next year before we've got through this year. But when God wants to move us into a situation that calls for a big, life-changing decision, as we pray... God gives us a clear understanding of his will as it relates to our particular circumstances so that we know the right decision to make. And then he gives us peace in our hearts about it. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian. Of course, it takes courage and it takes faith to wait on God and to wait for him to guide us. And it means that we have to be prayerful. But here, the men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. And so, verse 15, then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. See, Israel made an absolutely classic mistake because they made an important decision by their senses rather than submitting it to God in prayer and finding out what God wanted them to do. So we've seen how the enemy attacked by disguise and flattery. We've seen how Israel failed by prayerlessness. Notice lastly how God overruled. Verses 16 to 27. 
Now one of the great encouragements, I think, in the book of Joshua is the constant reminder that although we as Christian people make many mistakes, if we are Christians, our mistakes are not the end of the story because God overrules. Now there is such a thing in the Old Testament as sinning with a high hand. Uh, You've probably heard that phrase, it's a rather strange phrase. But it means to know what the will of God is, but then to deliberately refuse to do it. Sinning with a high hand means that I lift up my hand against God and I say, you say that, but I'm doing this. Now, sins like that can be forgiven, but they tend to harden our hearts uh, in a way that makes repentance really difficult and the road to recovery is often a very long and painful one. But there is also the sin of ignorance and that is the sin of which Israel was guilty here. You know, they could have prayed for God's guidance, but they didn't. They made a mistake. They made a genuine mistake caused by ordinary human weakness and fallibility. And because of the covenant relationship that God had brought Israel into, God was at work to overrule their mistake for their good. Now friends, that is true in the Christian life as well. That doesn't mean God always removes the unpleasant consequences of our mistakes. But it does mean that God uses our mistakes to achieve spiritual objectives that are for our eternal benefit and our ultimate greatest good. And that means, my dear friend, that if we're conscious this morning of areas in our lives where we've made mistakes, maybe bad mistakes, those aren't the end of the grace of God. Satan wants us to believe that they are, but they aren't. Because God has a way of using our mistakes for greater blessing. And that's what happens here. Within three days, Joshua realised the error, verse 16. Now how does he respond? Verse 18. But the Israelites did not attack the Gibeonites because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, in the text, uh, the assembly didn't like the fact that um, the leaders had done that. They wanted Joshua and the leaders to break their oath and to slaughter the Gibeonites. But the leaders refused. Now, why did they do that? Verse 20. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath that we swore to them. Now you see, they knew they'd made a mistake. But they'd sworn an oath in the name of the Lord. And if they broke it, people would say this. They'd say, well, that's what Israel's God is like. He doesn't keep his promises. You can't trust him. And Joshua and the leaders weren't going to let the name of the Lord be undermined 
by their mistake. They didn't know what the consequences of their oath might be, but they kept their oath because they'd made it in the name of the Lord. And you know, they were absolutely right to do that. Because if we go on in the Old Testament to 2 Samuel 21, you don't need to turn to it now, you can look it up later. But in 2 Samuel 21, we find there that King Saul tried to destroy the Gibeonites. He tried to go back on the oath that Israel had made in Joshua chapter 9. And as a result, God sent a famine on Israel for three years. See, God wasn't going to allow the oath taken in his name to be broken. And so here, because of the oath, uh, the leaders decide to stand by their mistake. That didn't make it right, but it did prevent the evil from escalating. But they also took some practical steps. Steps to prevent the Gibeonites becoming a source of impurity in Israel. So look at verse 23. In verse 23, Joshua says to them, You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Now, at first sight, you might look at that verse and and think, well, so what? Uh, It doesn't look very interesting. But I want to say to you, my dear friends, that it is absolutely fascinating. This is where we marvel at the overruling grace of God. See, think about it. Why did the devil send the Gibeonites to infiltrate Israel? Well, obviously his plan was to contaminate the community by their idolatry and their immorality. The devil wanted to corrupt their worship and to frustrate everything that God was doing to establish a holy nation in Israel from whom the saviour of the whole world would one day come. Now how does God overrule a plan like that? Well, he uses the devil's agents as woodcutters to keep the fire burning in the house of God, the fire that was essential for all their sacrifices. And he uses them as water carriers to ensure a constant supply of water for all the cleansing rituals that were so much a part of Israel's worship. Friends, can you see what's going on here? God overrules the enemy's attack and he overrules Israel's mistake to enhance the worship of God amongst his people. Do you see that? And in his grace and mercy, God even preserves the agents of Satan from destruction, 
and he makes them into his servants instead. Now friends, the the overruling grace of God is never an excuse for sin. But you know, for those of us who are painfully conscious of our past mistakes and failures, doesn't this give us tremendous hope this morning? You know, it means that if we come to God in humility and we confess our sin and our ignorance, then God will cause the Gibeonite influences in our lives to strengthen our worship and to deepen our prayerful dependence on him. And he might even bless the agents of deception themselves, which is what he did with the Gibeonites, because he drafted them into the nation of Israel. Because whatever we might think, and whatever appearances might suggest, nothing is impossible with God. God's grace is greater than all our sin. Let's pray. Let's have a moment of quiet as we make our own personal response uh, to whatever God might be saying to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that with you there are no dead ends. We thank you for showing us in this text that you used ignorant, fallible people like us and how you worked through their mistakes to bring great benefit out of a situation that looked to be disastrous. Lord, you know our hearts. You know the things that are on our minds and the mistakes that we've made. You know the alliances we've made which sometimes continue to haunt us. And yet you don't call us to break them, but rather to live in them in the strength which you supply. We pray that when we have to make big decisions, that we won't make them by our own wisdom, but that you will remind us to inquire of the Lord and to to obey your instructions perfectly. Help us, Lord, to walk through the days of this week with humility and faith and every day to commit our way to you and to experience the enabling of your grace, to know the strength of the Lord Jesus living within us and to walk a clear path forward with you, not sidetracked by the disguises and the flattery of our enemy, but rather trusting in the power of the risen Lord Jesus. And we ask it in his precious name.
Amen.